Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The teenager sitting in front of me was upset. That's probably putting it mildly. Let's face it. He was angry, bitter, and disgusted. As he talked, it became apparent that he loved his parents. He thought they were great. The problem, according to him, were those stupid rules They restricted his activity, and he didn't like them at all. His point of view was that those rules his parents had him under were unreasonable, unfair, and unnecessary. Now it seems to me that the believer in Jesus Christ might come to a similar conclusion about the law of God. Of course, he thinks the Lord personally is great. He is a loving, gracious, kind, merciful God. But those laws, those laws he has, they're what get in the way. They restrict our activity and they become a source of frustration. I mean, just consider the case against the law. For one thing, the law cannot save, right? Why, even the Apostle Paul says that. He makes the point in the book of Romans that we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law cannot save us. Nor can the law sanctify us. Now that comes as a surprise to some, but the Apostle Paul insists as he enters into the section of Romans that deals with our spiritual lives that the law cannot sanctify. As a matter of fact, he makes statements like, uh, we are dead to the law, and he insists on that. We are dead to the law, we are alive to God. On top of all of that, I think a case could be made for the fact that the law not only does not save us or sanctify us, what it does do is slay us. For as we come and stand before it, we discover ourselves guilty and it pronounces upon us the penalty of death. So, if you look at the situation, you might conclude, like that teenager, that parents are great. It's those stupid rules that get in our way. God is wonderful, but that law is our problem. Now, in going through the book of Romans, That's the kind of conclusion that you might come to. So the Apostle Paul asked that question. Very pointedly, he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now that's a very logical question in light of all that he has said. Throughout Romans thus far, he said the law can't save us. In the immediate section just preceding Romans 7, 7, he has said that we are dead to the law. He's pointed out repeatedly that the law is our source of sin and death. 
So it is very logical for him to ask, is the law sin? Is the law the source of our problem? What do you say about the law of God? Well, Paul answers that in the verses that follow. And here's what he says. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived, I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. In this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us the purpose of the law, and then he reaches a conclusion. As I understand these verses, he's telling us two things that the law does. First of all, he asks the question, is the law sin? And as he has done several times before in this immediate passage, he answers with a dogmatic, certainly not. You will recall he did that in chapter 6, verse 2, and he did it again in chapter 6, verse 15. So for a third time in this section, he asks a question and immediately responds with, certainly not. Following that dogmatic denial, he then gives us two things the law does and draws a conclusion. The first thing the law does is that it reveals sin. Notice he says in chapter 7, verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness except the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, obviously, what he's telling us in that verse is that the law reveals sin to us. But there's something else going on in the process that I need to point out. He says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin. Now, I want to focus for just a moment on the little word, I. It doesn't appear to be a problem as you read this passage, but if you know anything of the history of the interpretation of Romans 7, you know that that becomes a huge problem from this point through the rest of the chapter. There is a great debate, some of which we'll get into as we get into the latter part of Romans 7, over whether or not Paul is talking about himself. So some Bible teachers dogmatically insist that the word I hear is autobiographical, that Paul is speaking about himself. And others contend that it is not autobiographical, but it is editorial. Now, I do not see any reason in this passage why it should not mean exactly what it says. I can't imagine any reason for Paul saying I if he didn't mean I. So I take it that when Paul says, I would not have known, he means himself personally. I take it that beginning at this point and going through the rest of the chapter, when Paul says, I, he is speaking of himself. But now be that as it may, <clears throat> the point that he is making is simply this. I would not have known sin except through the law. 
Then he says, for, meaning I'm going to explain that statement, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now the point is very plain. It is that the law reveals sin. So Paul says, I would have been oblivious to the fact that there was a prohibition against covetousness had I not had the Ten Commandments to look at. So the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic moral law, were designed to reveal sin, and that is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Let me illustrate. James refers to the law as a mirror, which is the perfect illustration of what the law is about. You had some dirt on your face, Ladies would say your mascara ran or something. Or some fellow was fixing his car and scratched his face and got a glob of grease on his face. You might be totally unaware that your mascara was running or there was a smudge of grease on your cheek until you looked in the mirror. And very simply, you could have said, I would have not known my face was dirty, except the mirror said, your face is filthy. Now, Paul is saying that the moral law as recorded in the Mosaic Code is a mirror that reflects our moral and spiritual dirt to us. As I look at that law, I see I am a sinner. Now, that's not anything new to us. Most of us are aware that that's the function of the law. But in this passage, Paul goes on and he gives us a second thing that the law does. And this really gets interesting. Look at verse 8. It starts out, but sin. Now pause for just a second. The word translated but in verse 8 is a Greek word that can be translated but. But that particular little word in Greek can also be translated and. Now, there doesn't appear to be a contrast between what he says in verse 8 and what he says in verse 7. So many have concluded that this word should more properly be translated and. So that in verse 8, he is giving us a second thing that the law does. What he says is this. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Now, it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is that the law not only reveals sin, but sin used the law as an opportunity to arouse more sin. So the second thing that the law does is it arouses sin in me. The word translated opportunity in verse 8 means starting point. In a military context, it was used of a foothold or a beachhead. So he says in verse 8 that sin, uh, taking the opportunity by the commandments, that is, that law came along, and sin sees that as a beachhead to produce all kinds of more sin or evil desires 
in me. Now, if you will look at verse 8, you will see that in the latter part of the verse, there's another sentence, and it begins with four. And as I have said before, and will no doubt say many more times as we go through Paul's epistles, when you see four at the beginning of a sentence, it means he's about to explain what he just said. And in this case, he does just that. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. And then he further explains in verse 9, for I was alive once without the law. Now you need to pause there because the latter part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 is describing what it was like without the law. Then in the middle of verse 9, he describes what happened when the law came. And all of this is to tell us that the law arouses sin. So the first phase of this is he was without the law. And as he says in the latter part of verse 8, apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, if there is no law, sin still exists. Sin is sin, whether the law is present or not. But it was dead, he says. Many expositors look at the word dead and conclude that here it means it was inactive. Sin was there, but without the law, it wasn't producing more sin. It was just there. He says in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. Now, that little phrase in verse 9, just underline it, I was alive once without the law, is one of the most difficult phrases in all of Romans to interpret. What do you mean you were alive without the law? What do you mean? There are all kinds of explanations. For example, some people say that meant he was, when he was, it's a reference to when he was a little child. When he was small, he was alive without the law. He didn't know the law yet, and so he was alive without it. In a minute, he's going to say when law came, he died. So then he found out the law, and he was dead. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the way the rest of the Bible talks about our spiritual state before conversion. A second interpretation is that it simply does not refer to his childhood, but to what he was like before he became a Christian, before conversion, whether he was a child or an adolescent or an adult. But again, the Bible doesn't describe us as being alive before our conversion. On the contrary, it describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sin. Another possibility is that it is talking about uh, the law coming in in the Jewish nation. In other words, those who take that interpretation say this is an editorial I referring to mankind and it's the time before the law came in in Exodus 20 and the world was alive before that and the law came along and slew them. But he doesn't say that. He says I, and as I've already pointed out, there's no good reason for not taking the I to mean just what it says. Now, if you eliminate all those possibilities, and the reason I eliminate them is because the Bible never describes us before conversion as being alive. It describes us before conversion as being dead in trespasses and sin. So expositors come to this verse and they do all kinds of crazy gymnastics to try to get around the simple statement, I was alive once, the law came and I died. When I think the answer is in the context of this passage, and very few, frankly, I think, have seen it. What has he been saying in this section of Romans? He trusted Jesus Christ and he became what? Alive to God. 
he has made that statement several times throughout this passage. As a matter of fact, turn back in chapter 6 and look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Look at verse 11. Likewise, also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So in the context, he is simply saying, there was a time when I was alive. I think he is simply saying he trusted Jesus Christ, he was alive to God, and he was oblivious to any problem when all of a sudden the law came. Now that takes us to the middle of verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. That is, he's a Christian, and he's sailing along, alive to the Lord in fellowship with him, oblivious to the law, and all of a sudden, the law comes along and he says, oh, no, I'm not supposed to covet, and I coveted. And what happened? I died. Now, what does he mean? Well, he can't mean physically. I mean, he didn't die physically, right? I mean, he was alive to write this, and he isn't talking about dying spiritually, though that's what some try to make it. I think he's saying his spiritual life with God died. That the law came and he lost it. That is, he got guilty, he got under condemnation, he felt out of fellowship with God, his spiritual life died. So he says in verse 10, And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now, this is probably a reference to a verse in Leviticus where God told the Israelites they were to live by his law. And he said, man, instead of bringing life to me, that commandment became the source of death. Then he explains, verse 11, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So he is saying the law that was supposed to bring life brought death. Why? Because I couldn't keep it. That's why. And I found myself under the condemnation and the penalty of the law. Now, some, many, as a matter of fact, think that the language of these last several verses is deliberately taken from Genesis chapter 3, where Satan deceived Eve, and as a result, they died. He perhaps is using that kind of a language. But Paul is simply saying that the law aroused all kind of evil in him, that he was alive to God until all of a sudden he remembered the law, he broke it, and that just aroused the more sin and ultimately brought death to him. Now, apart from all of the uh, explanations of all the detailed phrases of this passage, the point is simple, that sin was aroused by the law. That much is clear, for he says in this passage that, verse 8, sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of more evil desires. And the rest of that is an explanation of that statement. So that statement is the point, 
The point is, sin arouses all, I mean, law arouses all kinds of sin in me. Is that true? I mean, the little boy wants the cookie, and you tell him no, and what does that do? Makes him want two cookies, right? One preacher has uh, captured this very well when he said, Paul wanted some object, perhaps innocent in itself, but he desired it for himself. When the law said, Thou shalt not covet, he rebelled. Let's suppose he saw a man on horseback, and he thought, What a fine horse. I'd like to own him. The law said, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's horse. At once, Paul's heart was in rebellion. Don't tell me not to desire that horse. I want that horse and a stable and a pasture and a slave to take care of him. I want another horse for my slave to ride beside me and a handsome uniform for my slave and a princely garment for myself. I want everyone to look at me and bow down before me, even the king. After all, I am who I am and I want what I want, when I want it. No discussion about it. Now that, I think, says it very well. You tell somebody, no, and that's the very thing they're going to say, I want. So Paul is saying, the law reveals sin, it arouses sin, and it ultimately becomes the source of death. Now, those are the two things sin does. Here are the conclusion, verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Huh? The conclusion is, the law is holy. The law is no doubt a reference to the whole Mosaic law. That's good. The commandment is more specific, and in this context is obviously a reference to the one commandment, the tenth commandment, of thou shalt not covet. But his conclusion is that all of that <clears throat> is good, it is holy, it is just. Now, verse 12 is the answer to the question asked in verse 7. Is the law sin? Answer, certainly not, verse 7. Answer, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So, the law is holy, the commandment is holy. It's holy in that it is a reflection of the moral character of God. It is just in that it demands justice. It is good in that it benefits mankind in revealing his sin and forcing him to seek a Savior. So it is good. Let me illustrate. There's an octagon-shaped sign that you sometimes see called a stop sign. <clears throat> Do those things ever get in your way? You ever get in a hurry? I, I, on a few occasions, I've driven late at night and come to those things and wondered if I had to stop when there's obviously no traffic on the street and everybody could see that, you know? Did you ever see one of those things be in a hurry and it just aggravates you the more to step on the gas instead of the brake? Did you ever run a stop sign? Don't answer that. When nobody was looking? Then I have presented a case for stop signs being bad, right? No. No, that human law of a stop sign is good. 
It's just prevents us from having accidents on busy street intersections. No, that's good. So the conclusion is, the law may reveal sin. I mean, the fact that you ran that thing revealed just how rebellious you really are, right? And on a few occasions may have aroused you to run it. But the sign itself is good. Now that's the sum of these little verses. Paul's point is, very simply, the law is holy and not sinful in that it reveals sin and even arouses sin, which forces us to face ourselves and forces us to seek the Lord. Now, when he gets to the next verse, he asks another question and off he goes again. We'll get to that one next time. But I'm going to stop at this point and uh, make a couple of suggestions. A couple of things we need to focus on for a second. For example, these verses are telling me that the law is not the problem. You understand? The stop sign is not the problem. What is the problem? Well, in this passage, Paul describes the problem as sin. Verse 8, taking opportunity by the commandment. Later, beginning in verse 13, he's going to pick that up and develop it more fully. Verse 13, as then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin was producing de uh, death in me, um, lost my place. But sin, though it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, that is through the law. So the problem is not the law, the problem is sin, further defined as sin in me, which is further defined in the next paragraph as in my flesh. So the problem is not the law. That's not the problem. But now having said that, let me tell you what the law does do and what it can't do. What it does do is reveal the sin. Now man doesn't like to face his sin. He wants to run from it. He wants to hide it. He wants to excuse it or justify it. One of the ways he does that is he renames it. So a lie is not a lie, it's a stretching the truth or some such thing. And adultery is not sin, it's an affair, whatever that is. So the law forces us to look at sin and call it by its name. The law reveals sin for what it is. I know you know that, but we tend to miss this, as I will demonstrate in just a minute. We want to make the law something else. What the law is for is to reveal sin, right? All right, now let me make another statement. Therefore, the law is not the problem, nor is the law the solution. Now, you see, we're very comfortable with hearing that the law is not the problem. We can accept the fact the law is me. 
But then somehow we start doing theological gymnastics in our mind and we want to make somehow the law the solution. So we turn right around and put Christians under the law. And one of the ways we do this is to divide the Mosaic law into three parts, as I have mentioned before, the civil, ceremonial, and moral. And then we say, when the Bible says we're not under law, we mean that we're not under the civil and ceremonial law, but we're still under the moral law. Then you don't understand the law at all. What does the law do? It reveals sin. It arouses sin. Is it going to save me? No. Is it going to sanctify me? No. So that if you resurrect the law and focus on it, you will fail every time. Because that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to save and it's not to sanctify. It is to reveal sin. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the famous expositor of 10th Presbyterian for many years in Philadelphia, wrote, and I quote, Several times in this paragraph we meet the expression through the law or through the commandment. Condemnation and death are ours through the law and commandments. There can be no true sanctification unless we are free from the law. An early commentator has said, legality is the great enemy to sanctification. Any sanctification measured by a set of rules is a bastard sanctification. We can take the first step in sanctification only when we know that we have been justified once and all and are regarded by God as holy and righteous in Christ. End of quote. Now that's pretty strong language, but folks, that says it. You cannot be sanctified by trying to keep some law. It's never going to work. Now let me illustrate. Let's suppose there's a glass of water on a table. It's been sitting there for some time. It looks clear. I mean, if you just took a quick glance at it. But then suppose you took a spoon and you put it in the water and stirred it up. And what you discovered is that the water had collected all kinds of dirt and it had settled to the bottom and the spoon stirred it up. Now, say that wicked spoon, that spoon's the problem. No, it isn't. The spoon revealed the dirt in the glass. Obvious, right? But then we turn around and say, and the spoon is the solution to the dirt. No. No. The spoon reveals the dirt, stirs up the dirt, but it is not the solution to the dirt. Well, what is? Some of you are looking at me like, yeah, answer that. What is? I mean, you just wiped out the whole Old Testament. You just wiped out even the moral law of Moses. I mean, what is the solution? Answer? Jesus Christ, folks. Jesus Christ. 
As a sinner, I come to the law and I see that I have violated it. And I have failed. And I deserve the penalty of death. What's the solution to that? Answer? Jesus Christ. My only hope is Him. Now as a believer, I decide, all right, then I'm going to go focus on the law and I'm going to now keep it. You know what you will discover? Failure. That's what you'll discover. And death. That's the point of this chapter of the Bible. So he gets to the end of the chapter and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Answer, Jesus Christ. So the New Testament method of sanctification is not to live by some law. It's to focus on Jesus Christ. So John's way of putting this is, abide in Christ. Paul says in chapter 7, you're dead to the law so that you can be married to another. You're alive to God. You're married to Him. So abide in Him. Be united to Him. Fellowship with Him. Commune with Him. And you will bear fruit to holiness. So the law is not the problem. But neither is the law the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. I'm getting ahead of the story. But if you really want to know what Paul thinks about all of this, look in chapter 8. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to explain that when you learn the lesson of the law of the spirit of life in Christ, verse 4, then the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are freed from the law that we might learn to walk in the spirit. And lo and behold, when we walk in the spirit, we discover we fulfill the law. Did that run past you too fast? That's the bottom line. So let me repeat it. We are freed from the law that we might walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit or according to the Spirit, then we discover, lo and behold, we have fulfilled what the law was trying to get us to do all along. So the problem's not the law, but neither is the law the solution. The law is to reveal the sin in us, to drive us to the Lord so we can produce fruit to holiness. Let's pray. Our Father, though the law slays us, we thank you for it. But we acknowledge that it is holy and just and good. But that makes us thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your Son. We long to know him. 
have his fruit produced in our lives. Father, teach us as individuals and as a congregation not to focus on the law, but to focus on the Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.